everyone, and welcome back to Video Store Nightmares, the podcast where we discuss the strange, the bizarre, and the black exploitation films of the VHS era. Tonight, we're talking about Jack Hill's masterpiece of the genre, the Pam Greer starring Coffee. My name is Luke, and I'm joined by Leland. Listeners, you can find 1973's Coffee on YouTube for rent or hear me out to be for free this is the first entry into our election category and when i originally added this to the bucket my thinking was that perhaps we would be pulling out some sort of obscure governmental film maybe you have like a messed up campaign or some weird quirky foreign comedy something that we'd be discussing along those terms but after looking at all of these films in most of these cases it's going to be corrupt politicians running a campaign while setting up their grift on the side so this was your first time seeing coffee right yes and um we we did a jack hill film before we did switchblade sisters so what did you think of coffee in comparison to that do you do you see similarities yeah you know i do um obviously the the theming is completely different but the tones are surprisingly similar did you did you take this one more seriously than switchblade sisters maybe i wasn't supposed to but i took switchblade sisters pretty seriously all things considered okay so was this less serious or more or the same i'd say the same okay uh, my experience with black exploitation films is very limited um i think i've maybe seen 10 maybe probably less but of what i had seen this was the most serious yeah, so let's talk about how this differed from other black exploitation films. When it so the story behind this film is that um AIP, American International Pictures, was going to develop a film from the script Cleopatra Jones. And somehow Warner Brothers swiped the rights out from under them and when aip found out that warner brothers was going to make cleopatra jones they said well we need our own female led black exploitation movie like an action star to compete and we need to rush it to market to beat their film and so they hired jack hill to write and direct and that's how coffee got made and the only reason Pam Greer was in it is Jack Hill had cast her years before in the big dollhouse, but she was a secretary at AIP at the time. So it was just coincidental. Like she never set out to be an actress. I think she was going to medical school. Um, she just uh, happened to fall into it. But what separated this from other films like it at the time was that it had a female main character that was unusual and it was anti-drug. And before this, black exploitation movies had mostly glamorized pimps and drug dealers. And this movie does the opposite. It portrays them as part of the corrupt system or, you know, the villains of the movie. And 
So that's why I think this movie comes off as more serious. I also think it comes off as more serious because Pam Greer can act. And a lot of the people in these movies can't. <laughs> like, just being honest, like, John Williamson is in a lot of these black exploitation movies. He's not in this one, but um, he's the other prolific person that I think of right away. And he's fine. He's a fine, like, action actor, I guess. But he, I, he's never convincing dramatically the way... Pam Greer is. And I read that when this movie came out, when Coffee came out, that Pam Greer got some bad reviews where critics thought her performance was bad. And I can't imagine. Like, I think it's really good. Bunch of fucking haters. I know. I think she's the best part of the movie. She is the movie. I mean, the script is really good too, don't get me wrong. But like, she is the spirit of the film. She comes off as a very real person, which is no, no small feat in a fucking action film. I actually think everyone in this in this movie comes off as a real person, which is not just surprising because it's an action film. I think it's surprising because it's an exploitation film. And it's got all of the elements of an exploitation film. But I can see why Quentin Tarantino is a huge fan of this movie, for example, because I think he does a similar thing in his movies where however absurd things become, however ridiculous or offensive or over the top, there's still a serious dramatic core. And that's what I think makes this movie work. But we also need to talk about the music which was composed and written and performed by Roy Ayers. Uh, I think it's one of the best soundtracks of all time. Is this a good time to play the trailer? Just go ahead and get some good fucking sampling going. Sure, let's do it. And then we'll talk about the music when we come back. My name's Coffee. Coffee, black and stacked and packed with fury. With both barrels zeroed in on the mob's top killers. This is the end of your rotten life, you dope pusher. Coffee. Where the action is, there coffee is. hit squad that ever hit town coffee awesome so what do you think of the music i'm a little disappointed the trailer doesn't have any of the the intro music or the credits music you know the vocals yeah that that's the, the those are the two that really shine to me i mean they i think every track is good I have I have an original vinyl pressing of this, which is not a cheap record anymore, but um, I won't ever sell it because I love this soundtrack. So let's start at the very beginning with this iconic opening scene where this young guy comes strolling through this spiral door and into a club and the waitress knows to go fetch this guy who he's here to meet. Oh, my God, damn it. 
Tony, what do you mean coming in here after me when I'm with my friends? Look, you get your black ass out of here. You get your supplies tomorrow like everybody else. No, man, it ain't that, man. I brought you something. Yeah? What? I brought you a piece of tail, man, because, like, I owe you a favor, you did. A piece of what? Man, what you talking about? Look over there. I got plenty of tail. I got more tail than I can handle. I even got white tail. And you coming in here telling me you brought me something. But you been shooting anyway. No, man, it ain't that, man. This is something special, man. This brought it sprung out. Saying she'll do anything to get straight, man. Anything. And she's yours. You fix it. Oh, come on, man. Don't be like that. If I say she's something special, she's something special, man. At least you can look at her. She's sitting in your car. In my car? You mean you got some strung up broad in my car? Man, I'm going to kick your ass. So I want to I wanna get this out of the way right at the beginning. Do you think it's okay that a white man wrote that dialogue? This is not an issue specific to this film. I personally have no problems with it. I think th- this is just an extreme example of sort of the, the egoism that's required to be a writer, right? Like you're a person, you're writing, right? But you have to assume with a high amount of confidence that you can write from the viewpoint of people with backgrounds and histories that you have never lived, right? You are making a ton of assumptions about how people think and act and react with the world around them. And this is just an example of a white man, probably privileged white male, writing from the perspective of, in this case, the majority of the film from like a disenfranchised black woman struggling against systemic oppression from both the government and criminal elements. You know, I think that I think the movie has been embraced by people because it's because it feels authentic. I mean, I think it feels exaggerated and it feels like an exploitation film. It's definitely hyperbolic, but it's got a grounded core that feels authentic. And I think that part of the reason it feels authentic is that Jack Hill worked really closely with Pam Greer through all of this. So, and I know Pam Greer came up with a lot of the ideas for the script, like putting razor blades in her Afro. That was her idea. So I know that she was a huge creative influence on the film and I don't know the history of this, but I assume, I imagine that at the time, a big studio like AIP would not have hired a black man to write the movie. Um, I don't know that that's true, but that's what I suspect. And I know that Jack Hill opened up a lot of access and possibility for black people and representation in film. And I think he's a civil rights hero in some ways, but I can definitely see how someone could see this and find it offensive. I I could understand that. Sure, but there's all sorts of black central media that has white writing influences in it from like in living color to 
uh, like Friday, there's there's a there's plenty of films. I mean, I don't think that really taints the experience at all. Who cares who's writing it as long as, as you were saying, it feels authentic. And it's not like this was a one man show. You know, there's there's a lot of help, a lot of input to make this film and media like it what they are. Well, I think I think the other issue that makes it potentially offensive is that you're dealing with archetypes, really. I mean, everyone in this movie is an exploitation archetype, and with the exception of maybe Pam Greer, because the idea of a female action hero hadn't really come around until this. And and I can see how archetypes are very similar to stereotypes. And when you're dealing with exaggerated ones like you are here, you know, the classic pimp, the classic prostitutes, it's I can see how it would be offensive. But I think Jack Hill injects these characters and they're well acted enough with complex emotions and vulnerability and character backgrounds um, like that they'd end up feeling authentic even if they are archetypes. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. And and I agree with you. Nobody in this film feels like a cardboard cutout. No, even if they like started that way, because this was based, as far as I understand it, Jack Hill's like homework assignment was to write a black exploitation film. But he wanted to do more than that, I suspect. And so we got all of the pieces, all the ingredients of a black exploitation film, but with much more depth than had been there before. But anyway, soon we're introduced to Pam Greer, who is playing Coffee. And she's acting strung out in the car. But did you realize right away that she was like playing a part? that she was pretending to be into him and strung out. Oh, of course. Like, I mean, the film is named after her and it's not going to be named after her because she's actually some strung out woman looking for a fix. She's obviously going to be kicking ass for like the next hour and a half. Right. But what I'm so some people I have read some complaints of the film that like no one would believe that she was that person, you know, no, she's not a good enough actress to pull that off in real life. Like why would anyone be tricked? But I think she does a pretty good job of being convincing. Um, I would say that she probably could have been a worse actress and it wouldn't have mattered because she's so fucking hot that he wouldn't have the right faculties to make proper decisions. All right, so I I agree. I'm glad I'm not the only one who finds her hot. But this leads this leads to them back at at his place and she asks him to turn off the lights and pulls out a shotgun and points it in his face. And I think we should just play this whole speech that she gives. This isn't just a shotgun. It's a sawed off. <laughs> This is the end of your rotten life, you motherfucking dope pusher. It was easy for him because he really didn't believe it was coming. But it ain't gonna be easy for you because you better believe it's coming. Wait, wait. What do you want to go and do this for? Why? 
What? Look here. I got your fix. Don't you want your fix? No, but you do. <laughs> I don't get this. What do you want with me? My name's Coffin. LaBelle Coffin is my little sister. LaBelle? Shooting smack at 11, and you got her out of your dirty shame. Please. Please. Her whole life is gone. She can never get it back. And you're living real good. That ain't right. It ain't right. The gonna take the shot. I can't. That'll kill me. Maybe it will and maybe it won't. But if it do, you're gonna fly through them pearly gates with the biggest fucking smile St. Peter ever seen. No, no. I don't even remember your little sister. No. No. I can't do it. So what did you think of coffee after this scene? Part of the reason why she's so, why it feels real is it because this is clearly the first time she's ever done something like this. Like her, the way her character is acting in this scene, she has never done this before. And man, it starts off really fucking strong because you see this initial guy's head just explode in front of the camera. It, I think it's an unheralded exploding head scene. Like people talk about exploding head scenes in scanners and in maniac, but they never mention coffee. It's a good one. I don't think it's intended, but her eyes are Pam Greer's eyes are closed the entire time that she's pulling the trigger for this scene. She's probably just doing it because you know, firing a gun at an exploding head, a head that you know is going to explode is probably scary. You don't know where those fragments are going. But if you were to have someone that's not properly trained and experienced in firearms do this sort of thing, like you constantly will see people shut their eyes while they pull the trigger. Yeah, see, I just took it as, oh, she's a character who doesn't have experience with a weapon. Yeah. So... And this, and this this goes on throughout the film because she constantly reflects on whether or not she was she did the right thing here. Like she is haunted by this opening double murder. Yeah. So in case it wasn't clear from the clip, she murdered these people because she's trying to avenge her little sister, Lubel, who is in like a, a clinic for kids who are strung out on drugs Yeah, it's like a methadone clinic. Yeah, and so um, her little sister's only 11, though. How do you think she got into it? Into the... What is smack? Is it heroin? Yes. Or cocaine? Um, It's heroin. The idea here was that um, Coffee was sending her little sister money so she could do... It was some sort of extracurricular activity. I think it was something involving music. I think it was ballet. Yeah, that's it. And, uh, you know, drug pushers found out that, you know, this little girl had a lot of money. They did their thing, got her hooked, took the money, and then she ended up in a clinic. Well, and her mother was also dealing or something. I forget. Yeah, her whole family was troubled. She kind of escaped yeah, but for whatever reason, um, Coffee was able to escape as well. Or uh, she's a nurse. She has a high-profile politician boyfriend who's running for Congress. 
Like she's definitely risen above her her original socioeconomic status. What did you think of her her boyfriend at the beginning? Let's talk about the scene where we're introduced to him. I don't know if this is a coincidence. You can probably tell me because you've seen way more black exploitation films than I have, or at least Pam Greer films than I have. But in Friday Foster, she also falls for like a wealthy black millionaire boyfriend. Like, and she passes up like the common everyday salt of the earth like partner that she's been working with the entire film for this guy. And I kind of got those vibes here with this, uh, this police officer character we're about to be introduced to and the, the politician boyfriend. Yeah. Common trope. It, I don't know if the like love triangle angle is common, but I think it is common that there is a, powerful or wealthy black person who's kind of quote sold out to the man and you can't really trust them they're sometimes if they're not the outright villain of the film they're a shady character because of their wealth it's assumed that they're part of the system and uh, to a degree that makes sense so so I think this is part of that archetype. In Friday Foster though, he he's not he doesn't have this hidden angle. He's actually it's more like of a and it's of a more idealistic film. Like this guy's like a general leader. But it's more the idea that you know, she's she's in both movies she's dating like super upper class very wealthy men over the guys that she probably has way more in common with. Yeah, see, the same social like strata, right? I just don't remember well enough what her relationships were like in other films. Like Foxy Brown, I don't remember her having a single boyfriend at all, but maybe I'm just misremembering. Foxy Brown was sort of the unofficial sequel to Coffee. They were going to make a, an outright sequel to Coffee, and Apparently, the studio thought that sequels were really unpopular at the time. They weren't performing well at the box office, so they changed it to be a different character, but it's pretty much a sequel. Sequel's not popular, huh? Uh, Apparently not at that time. Oh, that feels like a bad market read. Yeah. But, uh, no, Foxy Brown, I don't... I've seen Foxy Brown and Sheba Baby... Bucktown, I think she's in a relationship with Fred Williamson, who I brought up earlier. Um, she was in Scream, Blackula Scream. I don't remember who uh, who she was in that movie, though. It's been ages since I've seen that. Maybe we'll do that one day. And then in The, the Big Birdcage and The Big Dollhouse, which are her two other films with Jack Hill, or two of her other films with Jack Hill, uh, she has smaller parts in those. She's not the main character. I think um, Coffee was her first like lead character role. But going back to this politician, what's probably the most obvious part of the script is that this guy is very shady. And Coffee is the only person that seems to not notice. 
Yeah, you know, there was a scene where they're filming a television commercial and it's basically him having a conversation with a group of people in the park and talking about systemic racism and how like law enforcement is in bed with the gangs and the gangs are in bed with the drug pushers and how it's this complex system. And so at that point, I was like, you know, this guy really gets it. Like he really is fighting for his people. But it's a brief, it was a brief uh, diversion from the truth. I think the exact line was the only color I believe in is green. (laughs) That was uh, at the end. Yeah, that's who he turns out to be. But for even if you knew this guy was not a fraud, this is some very powerful language for a film, like especially for the 70s. Yeah, it's... um... It's pretty intense. They got away with a lot. Probably because it was a smaller studio, right? And it's a black exploitation film. Who would imagine some observation like that would be in a film like this? No, I think, I, I mean, I said on a previous episode that I think black exploitation is in some ways an acceptable term because it has been claimed and self identified by the black community. And I think that. Black people were involved in a lot of the writing and the production and the behind the scenes, as well as the on-camera stuff for these films. And they had an understanding of what was aligned against them. Like, they weren't naive. So I I like hearing something like this in the film. I, I think that it's it would have been really controversial at the time. And I'm kind of surprised it is here in a in a semi mainstream film, but I'm not surprised that they would have written something like it. Especially Jack Hill, from what I've heard, um, really did really did think about these issues, like really was conscious of wanting to push them in his film. Maybe they were able to get away with it because of the person, the character who's saying it. You know, it's just like a giant political fraud. So, you know, he is saying these things, he's making these connections, but he's ultimately just trying to manipulate the public for for his own schemes. Like, you can't trust what this guy's saying. No. And I think part of the reason he seems shady is because he wears kind of like tinted glasses, right? <laughs> that's what makes him shady i'm just saying that he fits us like i think filmmakers have hints to give us right they have things in their toolbox as foreshadowing and i think one of them is well we're gonna literally make this guy look shady give him darkened glasses i think i try to watch for things like that well you know what is kind of a, a giant red a red flag is that his main henchman is has a uh, half and half glasses. <laughs> yeah. Instead of like, I've seen people do this before, but not in real life, only in movies like black out one eye of their glasses. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen anyone actually do that? No. I mean, I've seen, I've seen people wear an eye patch with glasses, but I've not seen this. Yeah. No, it looks like he colored over one half of his glasses with a a Sharpie. It it looks really bad. Is it that dark? I just figured it was like sunglasses. 
I don't know. It looks like colored in to me. It didn't look like it was made that way. We're introduced to this guy at a, what do we call this? Like a strip club steakhouse that he just bought a steak in. I called it the volcano lounge. The volcano lounge. Yeah. (laughs) Because there's flames everywhere. And yeah, there's a topless dancer dancing in the middle of the flames. In Florida, there is a um, pseudo popular, like a gentleman's club chain that doubles as a steakhouse and a strip club. And this is what I would imagine how classy they want to be. But I've never been in one. I, I doubt it's anything like this. Yeah, I doubt it. But before we go further with this guy, should we talk about her, uh, the competition for her affections, her cop friend? You might as well. He's not in the movie for very long. No, but he seems to play an important, like, motivating part. Well, behind every successful and entertaining revenge story, you need to have a victim you can sympathize with. Well, we already have Lubel, the little the the little sister. Yeah, just keep adding to the pile. Yeah, well, we have her her this cop's name is Carter, and apparently they go way back, like they dated in high school or something. They talk about having fun times back then. But now they're not together and she's with the politician and he's a police officer, but he he calls himself one of the good ones, like that a lot of cops are corrupt, he says, and are, you know, sold out to the gangs and the drug the drug cartel. But he's one of the, the clean ones and he really wants to date her like he really wants to rekindle whatever relationship that they had. What do you think of this guy? Again, down to earth, you know, respectable, somewhat innocent. You know, he's not making it to the end of the film. No, but he doesn't die. Maybe that would have been better. (laughs) This is, I'm laughing, but it's really terrible. So, but before we get there, let's talk about when they go to the the clinic, um, the methadone clinic. So that she takes him... He's like, oh, I really want to spend the day with you. And and she says, you won't want to do what I'm doing. And he says, try me. So they end up going together to the clinic. Uh, she says the youngest is nine years old here, but she's visiting her, her little sister. And we don't see much of the little sister in this movie. No, I think this is it. Yeah. <laughs> Again, we hear about her a lot, but we don't actually see her, which I think I thought was kind of weird. Well, to be fair... The entire film, Coffee is busy, like basically performing espionage in a criminal underworld. She has no time for herself. She she doesn't even go to her own house outside of like the first 10 minutes of the film. No, it's funny. You know, if this movie was made today, there would be long scenes where like she's at home with her boyfriend and her she'd have a daughter and like so that she would have a a family it would show us her family relationship you know and build more tension but this movie dispenses with all of that it just has her doing shit like getting shit done if this movie were made today like half the scenes would be less violent less gratuitous less sexually gratuitous uh 
it's something that is is interesting about this film is that coffee uses her her sexuality as a weapon like she uses it to gain people's trust so she can stab them in the back later like this isn't one of those films where you'll have like a femme fatale like talk her way out of sex in a bedroom like no she is using every tool in her arsenal to be able to influence all of the people she wants to get revenge on. Yeah, she's a very smart character with very limited resources. So she uses what she can, which like she's aware that she's an attractive person and she knows she can use that to get what she wants. She's, I'm sure, used to having to do that. Like this isn't a glamorous film. Like there's, there's a, she has to gain the trust of a really skeezy pimp and in the process, like sleeps with him. Like in a modern movie, there would probably have been a way to work around that in the script. So do you think that that would have been better or do you think that this is better? I don't have an opinion on which is better. I just think it's interesting. This is the line they went with. And it yeah. does, at the very least, to make it seem more like she's sacrificing something, that she's having to spend her time and effort and energy in this way with people that she absolutely detests. Yeah. I mean, maybe I live in a bubble, um, but my sense is that most people treat sex much more casually and transactionally than Hollywood does, um, or Hollywood films do, I mean, that... In real life, a woman like Coffee probably, I don't want to say she probably would turn to sex work, but I think that she would be aware of the possibility, right? Like it would be a consideration. And I just think that that's more real. Yeah, more real. Like in practice, yes, sex is more transactional, IRL. But um, openly, socially, that's never acknowledged in a way that's acceptable anyway. Yeah. But anyway, okay, so let's get back to to Carter. The next time we see Carter, it's because she's parked before work and this guy tries to feel her up through the car window. But Carter is happens to be there because he wanted to talk with her. He steps in and saves her. So they end up back at his place for coffee and that's when these two guys with ski masks bust in well before that he he gets a phone call oh yeah he gets a phone call and the way he explains it is that some people want him in on a corrupt deal and he doesn't want to do it and you know he's just not virtue signaling here to coffee because he's already discussed earlier his his views on this stuff Yeah, no, he's really firm. He tells the guy, like, not only am I not in, but if I find out that you're in, I will, like, publicly shame you, I think is what he says. He'll turn him in. Yeah. So, no, he's not having it. But, yeah, so do you think that this was the precipitation for the people busting through the door then? Well, yeah, absolutely, because we're treated to the scene of the other party who's at a coin phone on the side of the highway. And after he hangs up the receiver, he just looks over at a shady dude in a car, shakes his head, car drives off, presumably with the goon squad. So 
in that case, it's really impressive that all of this was in place. It doesn't, the film doesn't always seem believable is my point, but it's not a problem for me. I don't care. Uh, this, this film seems pretty believable. I mean, the only thing I would say is that's out of the ordinary is that we, you know, are being exposed to a bunch of like drug addicted prostitutes, but everyone we see is an absolutely immaculate physical condition with like <laughs> no injuries or scarring or deformities. Yeah. At the end of the day, it is an exploitation film. Yeah. Yeah. All right. There's one exception where we have a character with a scar down her face. Of, of course, brought on by domestic violence. Right. With her pimp. Pimp boyfriend. Right. Well, she, she seems to think that they're an item, but then maybe like 20 minutes later, we see him with somebody else. Well, yeah, we eventually find out that this this pimp, King George, like his habit seems to be to get one like close girlfriend for a few months and then he turns her out on the streets and gets a new one. That seems to be the trend. But anyway, back to this scene. Uh, these two guys bust in and beat the hell out of Carter with um, with bats. This is really brutal. He's not killed, but he uh, sustains a significant amount of brain damage. Yeah, the way the doctor phrases it is maybe he'll be able to go to the bathroom by himself one day. Luckily, coffee ends up making it out mostly unharmed. So much action and stuff is happening during the movie that in some ways, I think you forget about Carter. And it it's just, it's a really harsh Right. Like it's really brutal what happened to him. And it's horrifying to me. Like talk about the nightmare. This is it. Right. Being so mentally damaged that you can't even live independently anymore. I don't know. I'm rambling, but it's horrifying. When you listen to old gang heads from like the 70s talk about gang violence, they, um, they kind of like reminisce at the lack of guns that were involved. Like they think like the, the kids of today, you know, are always shooting and killing each other and it's senseless. But back then they uh, kind of just beat each other up with blunt weapons and caused traumatic damage like this. And uh, I don't know if this is necessarily better. No, this is, um, this is more disturbing in some ways I, I don't know if i'd feel that way in real life like i don't know if in real life being seeing somebody shot for example is more or less disturbing than seeing someone beat with a baseball bat but for some reason in film the latter is more disturbing but just like uh, coffee's sister this guy is relegated to the back room and we never see him again but mm -hmm. His his trauma is, you know, still the focus of her vengeance, along with, you know, her own sister's victimization. But she doesn't really know who's behind it. She's just kind of guessing. So she goes with, like, who she's heard of. And she's heard of this pimp, King George, and Carter brought him up in an earlier scene. And so she decides, she decides she'll start by going after him. 
at least that was my impression of her her method yeah and uh somehow this full-time nurse manages to get enough time off to perform her own independent investigation of the criminal underworld we only see her nursing once and and she gets kicked out of the operating room because she's too um what is the word she uses uh she says tired, but she is stressed out because she just committed murder for the first time in her life. Yeah, she says there was a car accident on the freeway and she was shaken up about it. But anyway, no, she's really shaken up about the murders. My point is, this is really the I think this is supposed to dismiss her as a nurse for us. Like it's supposed to tell us for the rest of the movie that, oh, yeah, she does nurse sometimes. <laughs> Can I use nurse as a verb? Is that okay? Sure, yeah. It's your, it, it's your show. You can say whatever you want. Okay. <laughs> so she decides to go after this um, previous patient uh, who she helped after her face was cut open by King George. I never was a street hustler. I was his top call girl and his personal old lady. Until he cut your face. Then you weren't so popular anymore. Then you put you back on the street. Now ain't that right? Yeah. That's because I got mad and I called him a nigger. And I knew I shouldn't have done that. You know this fellow Vitroni? Arturo Vitroni? Sure. All George's girls know Arturo. Balling Arturo is like paying your taxes to the government. What's he like? Uh, you mean, what is he like or what does he like? Both. Oh. Well, he's kind of freaky. Not too bad. <sighs> he likes a girl he thinks is foreign. Exotic, you know? I mean... You tell him that you are the queen of the giant cluckluks from inner Siberia and he starts dripping in his pants. And the only way he's going to get it off is to have you crawl around the floor, talk bad to you, spit on you, things like that. Where does King George find girls that'll do that kind of an act? Those pushers mostly. They find strung out chicks that do anything to get straight. This character, this very minor character, when uh, she first says, you know, my old man, she isn't going to be happy to see you here. I thought I misheard her. <laughs> no. How, was, how, would, how would you describe her old man? I was very surprised to find out that <laughs> her old man was uh, definitely unhappy to see coffee in the house. <laughs> yep. Uh, I'm gonna leave this one to you. First of all, before we move on to the old man interruption, one thing that's important about this clip we just played is that Coffee finds out what this guy Petroni likes, and so she decides that the way to infiltrate all of this will be to pretend for her to pretend to be a foreign call girl or hooker of some kind. What did you think of her Jamaican accent? 
I've heard some pretty authentic Jamaican accents and uh, this this one sounds I can actually understand what she's saying so I have a feeling it's not very accurate no <laughs> what I've heard in the wild uh, when you get like the real Jamaican accent it is so hard to tell what they're saying B- between the strength like like the strength of the accent combined with this the slang the lingo that you're just unfamiliar with it's it's one of those oh my god that is english but i just i don't know what they're saying no her her accent is like earlier i said that when pam greer was like undercover i thought she was really convincing the accent is the one detriment because it's not very strong and i can't imagine someone thinking it was a real jamaican accent but at the end of the day i don't think king george cares even if he knows it's fake the whole point is to get something that petroni will like and she knows that and petroni doesn't seem to i think do you think petroni is really dumb or do you think he just kind of sees through everything we are getting so sidetracked every time we try to talk about a scene in this film because we then we end up like going down like a, a a rabbit hole of like three other scenes before we end up getting back to the original one we were trying to discuss. The plot is actually pretty intricate. Yeah. So let's just get this out of the way now. You know, Pam Greer, Coffee, she finds out basically the the hierarchical ladder of the crime syndicate she has to start from george and work the way up work her way up she's going to do it by pretending to be a, a prostitute from the islands which is hopefully going to stoke the interests of the head of the criminal organization so she can like off him and you know exact absolute revenge for the devastation that he's done to both her personally and the community at large. So after she finds the info she want, is looking for. Well, first she asks where the drugs are stored. Yeah. She wants like, where does he keep his supply? Yeah. Where does King George keep his drugs? And, and believe it or not, this is a huge fucking plot point. It is indeed. Um, and uh, but this is what causes distress, because up until now, this woman, Priscilla, that she's interviewing is going along with this, giving her information, sharing, you know, her experiences. Uh, but she becomes furious and grabs a knife. And so coffee breaks up a wine bottle. So she'll have uh, broken glass to fight with. And this is uh, one of our um I think coolest action scenes in the movie. I will say though, um, this is definitely a fake bottle because she barely love taps this thing against the table and it shatters perfectly. It looks <laughs> weapon. It looks good on camera though. It, I guess, but like you'd think you would just slam that shit on the side of the table. She's just like dunk and it just falls perfectly into the shiv. It makes her more it makes her more badass in some way. Like <laughs> all the powers in the wrist. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but did you notice that when when uh, Harriet, uh, Priscilla's old man, comes busting in, she looks to the table to grab the bottle and it's not yeah. there? Yeah. 
<laughs> I thought that was the funniest moment of the film. So yeah, um, Harriet is this big, bulky black woman who uh, is very possessive, apparently, of Priscilla. And so she goes after Coffee, and Coffee has to run for her life. Priscilla's got a type. Like, strong, <laughs> possessive partners. Like, this does not feel like a, a good situation either. Like, you know, at first you're like, oh, well, she, you know, she got away from George. Maybe she's, you know, about to get a better life for herself. And then she just casually snorts Coke during the conversation with coffee. And then the abusive girlfriend kicks in the front door. <laughs> yeah, no, she seems like the type that will go along with whatever she's told to do. Right. Like she didn't pick these relationships. They picked her. Well, I'm sure the drug access is the, the the main lure. Yeah, true. So what when we finally meet King George and he even gets his own theme song, which yeah, I think is is pretty good. That's incredible. Yeah. I was not expecting him to have a theme song. You know, oh. Coffee gets her own theme song and her own closing song, right? Uh-huh. You just don't expect a character in the middle of the fucking movie to get one. How often do you see that? Hey, Roy Ayers is is a genius. So we have him to thank for, again, one of the greatest soundtracks of all time. If you don't own this soundtrack, get it. Even if you don't, like, aren't into funk music, this is like a good gateway into funk. This is a wonderful soundtrack. I don't, so I don't know enough about this and I don't know if you want to actually include this in the recording, but what do you think came first? This kind of like stylized pimp culture, like, do you think that's developed on its own in the streets or do you think that it showed up in films like black exploitation films and then real life imitated art? I think it probably, they probably fed off each other. I think that real pimps probably started dressing this way and then Hollywood or independent filmmakers started to mimic it and maybe exaggerate it. And then real life people probably started to imitate what they were seeing on the screen. That's how I imagine it happening anyway. But yeah, King George is very much the stereotypical pimp, right? Cape, hat, cane, sunglasses, has a whole bunch of women who live around him and lounge by the pool bright colors yeah flamboyance indeed uh so and all, and all of this kind of just disguises his absolutely despicable criminal personality because this is a man who ultimately deals in human trafficking drug trafficking god knows what else and uh what did you think of all the other girls that we meet like we meet them. This is a whole like 10 minute side plot where we meet all the other women. Is it 10 minutes? That wouldn't surprise me. Uh, we get introduced to the rest of his stable. He has a, a pretty smooth operation going on here. Like he has a call center, right? He has a literal call girl, haha, who fields customer phone calls and distributes them amongst the workforce to go out and service customers. Yeah. Like, this is actually pretty innovative if you think about it. Like we take this sort of shit for granted because we have uh, every company in the fucking world has like a customer service line now, but this was 1973. Pimp, Pimp George, King George here is uh, improvising 
All right. He's despicable, but innovative. I'll give you that. Yeah. What an entrepreneur. But Coffee's using her fake Jamaican accent. And uh, they end up going to a party where she's supposed to hook up with Mr. Petroni. Yep. She convinces King George that she is proper King George material for the brand. And while and while she's there, she's getting very jealous looks from uh, King George's main girl, um, his old lady. Now, uh, what is this character's name? Do you remember? No. <laughs> All right. So, jealous blonde is throwing mean glances at at coffee and eventually spills a drink tray all over her which gives her an excuse to leave the room go to the fireplace go to the stash and switch out the drugs for sugar could not have planned this any better no and this ends up having um big ramifications later in the movie like that you would not expect, right? Were you were you surprised by the plot developments? Yeah, I think the only real story beat I predicted was how scummy the politician boyfriend was going to be. Everything else, I was along for the ride. Well, this is perhaps the most famous scene here where after the girl throws the drink tray on her, she goes to the bathroom and puts razor blades in her hair. So if anyone were to grab her hair and try to pull on it, they'll cut their hands. And then she goes back out there ready to fight and pours a salad all over the girl who drinked her. <laughs> drinked her? <laughs> I don't know. What is the verb for when you throw a drink tray on somebody? Well, regardless... We're then treated to a scene where coffee proceeds to beat the ever living shit out of like seven prostitutes. For a nurse, she's really like one, she's really she's in really good shape. But two, she knows how to fight. Like she can kick ass. Yeah, because she's from the streets. I mean, I would imagine most of these girls are also from the streets, but she's from right. the streets. Well, I think she's, she's also not strong out on drugs, right? <laughs> true. And I also think that she's exceptionally resourceful and intelligent. And so doing things like putting razor blades in her hair, like that was a genius idea. That was Pam Greer's idea. And it, who would have thought of that? Like you have to be so industrious, right? And I think that's why she's so good. And that's why she's able to survive so many of these situations. Like she slugs people in the face. She fucking body slams them. Like this is serious. And of course the rest of the party's loving it. No one is stopping this. And like girls tops are getting ripped off. <laughs> like we haven't really drawn attention to it, but there are so many titties in this film. Like King George looks like he wants to stop, but Mr. Petroni holds him back. He's like, no, I want to watch. And yeah, a lot of topless women. We haven't really talked about any of the other criminal elements, like any of the henchmen. I just want to say that uh, I was not expecting Sig Haig to be in this film. Oh, he's in, he's in most, if not all, of Jack Hill's films. But he wasn't in Switchblade Sisters, right? 
No, that's that might be the one exception. I don't think I've ever seen him this thin. Oh yeah, he was re- he used to be really like tall and lanky and thin. Most of my Sid experience is from his later in his career, especially like the Rob Zombie movies that came out. Like that's that's how I was introduced to him. Yeah. No, the first movie I ever saw him in was Jack Hill's first movie, Spider Baby. And he's I think he's in his early 20s in that movie, maybe even a teenager. And uh, but he still has that distinctive look. And he he and Pam Greer have a pretty feisty relationship in all of the Jack Hill movies. Um, So they have a history together. Uh, and I think they play off each other very well in this movie. But I think he does a great job as a, um, as like a, you know, hired thug, like a reliable hired thug. Oh, I think he's fantastic. I think there's a reason that like Rob Zombie plucked him out of obscurity and used him in the modern day because he really had an impact in these movies. Like he was a memorable presence. Even that is to he, say, though, he, he doesn't play this type of character in the later half of his career. He plays like a, you know, fucked up clown guy. <laughs> Completely different character. Yeah. So let's talk about when Coffee goes to Petroni's house that night. Um, and she... The house. I think it's a hotel room. Yeah, his hotel room. And she brings... She brings a gun and she disguises it by putting like a stuffed lion on top of it. Why would she be carrying the lion? No, she she shoves the uh, pistol inside a stuffed lion to hide it. But I'm I'm with you. Why would a prostitute be walking around with a stuffed lion in her purse? Maybe it was a fashion statement during the time and other people did this. I don't know, but it seems it's strange to me you know hey i'm sleeping over and um i'm bringing my my lion (laughs) don't don't fucking question it but uh he doesn't even notice it and it's all going really well and then exactly like priscilla said would happen he starts degrading her he wants her to get down on all fours and crawl to him and he's calling her a bitch and that's when she pulls the gun on him you want me to crawl, white motherfucker? What are you doing? Put that down. You want to spit on me and make me crawl? I'm going to piss on your grave tomorrow. So yeah, Sid Haig interrupts along with the other bodyguard. And uh, she blames King George for setting it all up. She says he's been working with the brothers all along. Ooh, I'm surprised they bought this. They have no reason to believe anything else. Like, what's the alternative? You think that this, that that one single woman is going to go through all this trouble for vigilante justice? That's one element of the movie I really like, is I like that everybody underestimates her and just takes for granted that what she's saying is true because the alternative is too bizarre. But when the man with one eye comes in, he looks kind of shocked and he says that Mr. Petroni has more problems than he can imagine. I really like that because up until now we haven't 
we didn't really know who this character was, but we see him in the background of all these scenes. So we know he's connected somehow. I thought this was really effectively done. Agreed. What's more effective, though, is this follow-up scene where the goon squad is now coming after King George. We see him in his bathroom measuring out on scales um, drugs for, I'm assuming, a scheduled delivery. But when he goes down to his car for the ride, he is meted by he is greeted by Sid and the other henchmen and ushered into the backseat at gunpoint. And I don't know about you, Luke, but even though this guy is a giant piece of shit, I thought there was a huge amount of tension here as far as what's going to happen to this guy, especially when you consider that what is about to happen to him wasn't even his fault for a change. (laughs) Yeah, no, I agree. It's a very tense scene. It's very... um disturbing and frightening in some ways like to imagine yourself in this situation he they try to relieve the tension by like laughing right there's a while while they're just laughing but then he it begins to sink in that this is for real because they're driving off in the middle of nowhere and he's like guys where are we going and they just tell him it's a surprise so we know that something horrible is going to happen we just don't know what it is and i think that Uh, Then we start to imagine, right? Did you imagine what ultimately happened? I thought they were just going to take him out in the woods and shoot him. That's what I thought. But no. That is is too low class for this film. They tie a noose around his neck and connect it to the car and start driving. And it's pretty brutal. The interesting thing about this scene or one of the interesting things about this scene is that there's no music no i think it because if there were if there was it would come off as an action scene right because we see the car careening around and knocking into stuff and the body is swinging back and forth through the street and if you put music over top of it it could have easily become an action scene and then it wouldn't have been disturbing anymore he isn't just being dragged behind his car. Like they drive through a construction zone and his body is just helplessly bashing against barricades and cones and eventual trash and debris as they start driving around an abandoned property. Uh, did you find this effective? Did it? Uh... Oh, for a hundred percent. I think this is the most tense part of the entire film. And this is for a character that sucks. there's absolutely no reason to feel sympathy for this guy well meanwhile while this is going on coffee is locked in a shed at Petroni's house and she's begging for food and water but Sid Haig won't let her out and so she sharpens I think it's a hairpin she sharpens it against a rock and then puts it back in her hair and this is going to be an important detail later I just want to mention that the entire time that this car scene is going on, King George's like personal chauffeur is in the front seat the whole time. He relinquishes the wheel to Sid when it comes time to do the, uh, the violent part. But then afterwards, you know, they all get out of the car and they're kind of just looking at King George's limp body in the 
parking lot. And uh, Sig's like, hey, man, you're a good kid. You know, you can come work for us. We're not such bad guys. And then there's a very brief flash of like King George's battered, like mutilated body who was just drugged through miles of asphalt. Yeah. I don't know. That seems really effective. I don't mean to keep coming back to it. But anyway, yeah. Then then we just immediately jump to coffee being locked into like a sauna, which is where she's getting the rocks from. What I think is funny is that Sid, who is like her prison guard, predicts that she is going to bash him with one of the rocks that's in there. <laughs> yeah, because he's smart too. See, we're so used to every single character in a movie except maybe the main character being an idiot. <laughs> and in this movie, they're not. They actually do smart things and predict smart things. I mean, they do stupid things too, but it's intelligently written. So they bring Howard in, Coffee's boyfriend. First off, he's not happy about being there because no. he doesn't want to be seen with them. And it's about this time in the background. We also noticed the police commissioner. Is that who it would be? I think so. Either way, a high ranking member of local law enforcement is also there. So like every single crooked politician and criminal element is in this one shack and they are not supposed to be seen with one another because they do not want to be connected. No, but earlier in the movie, when when Howard first tells uh, Coffee that he's running for office, he doesn't say, I'm running. He says, they're running me. As if there are someone behind the scenes who's decided he should run. And that was the impression I got. Is here we have the power brokers in this room. Yep, here's the election we're talking about. And um, he turns on Coffee. He says she's just some broad that he fucks. Very quickly, I might add. Oh, yeah. No hesitation. Immediately. He says that, um, like, at some point, the the one-eyed guy is like, no, you know, they're both black and they're all going to stick together. And uh, And this is when Howard says, no, I don't care about skin color. I only care about green. He makes fun of him, too. Like, you've been listening to too many of my campaign speeches. (laughs) Yeah, he really, I mean, if you wanted to obnoxiously rub in how much of, like, a treachery this is of what Coffee believes, this is how you do it. I mean, there, it's, it must be, like, truly shocking for her. So were you surprised by the, uh, how drastically he changed? No, not at all. <laughs> Sorry, this is coming. This came from like a thousand miles away. I don't think anybody was surprised by this. No, not that I wasn't surprised that he was like corrupt, but I was surprised that he turned on her so quickly. I thought he would hesitate more. I mean, if we were in his position, we would, but but we ain't. This is him. <laughs> yeah. Well. Asshole. Okay, so he talks smart, but he ain't that smart. No. All right, so they get coffee in the car to take her out and kill her. And in the meantime, they decide they're going to shoot her up with the dope that they took from King George, which we know is really sugar. 
Right. I think the idea was they were going to try to just make it look like an overdose and leave her in a like trench somewhere under the highway. Yeah, I also assumed that if they, you know, injected her with heroin, she'd be more compliant. Like, yeah. she'd be easier to move around and all of that. Um, but instead, she begins trying to seduce Sid Haig. She's like, just imagine what I could have done with an attractive man like you. And so he's he's like, okay, wait, hold on. There's still time. We don't have to kill you yet. During the scene, there's a lot of audio of like his leather jacket like crinkling and moving around. <laughs> Was there? I didn't notice. Yeah, I don't know. I thought I added to the to the really me <laughs> crinkle. Well, they go lay outside like in under the highway overpass by a bunch of yeah, on top of some trash man <laughs> yeah <laughs> move that newspaper over <laughs> like all right coffee's kind of being forced here but this is how sid Haig chooses to get down this is where he wants to do this not even in the well no his buddy tells him he can't do it in the car yeah no don't do it in the car yeah, but she takes the um she takes this opportunity to attack him with the hairpin. She stabs him a bunch of times in the neck. She she nicks like every artery in his neck. <laughs> yeah, the blood is just gushing. He's like holding his hand to his neck and it's gushing blood. And she manages to run. And there's a bunch of action here and like people getting run down with cars, but. Yeah, this is this is where the movie gets a little bit more traditionally action oriented, where there's a like a, a foot chase across the highway. One of the other henchmen gets run over. <laughs> a lot of shots are fired. A uh, crooked cop tries to run her over. She throws a rock at the windshield and causes the car to turn over until it bursts into flames, roasting the officer inside. Yeah, but not before she pulls the shotgun out. But not before she pulls the shotgun out. Right. And she ends up getting picked up by some guy and going to a liquor store and she steals his car. Oh, my God. This was so extra to include in the script. (laughs) But it makes sense from a practical standpoint. It's just surprising that they took the time to film and include this. Because, yes, now she has a shotgun, but now she doesn't have a ride. She's in the middle of nowhere. So she plays sexy hitchhiker to get one guy's attention. And then while he's inside the liquor store, he doesn't even make it to the door. He's on the way to the liquor store. And she just completely hot wires this car in like 10 seconds and takes off with it. But now she has the means to commit murder and the transport. (laughs) And so she drives back to the criminal house. I didn't think she hotwired the car. I thought he just left it running. Like, I thought he was that trusting. Oh, God. I mean, maybe maybe I'm giving him too much credit. I think so. I assume she hotwired it. I don't know what that says about me. Well, back at Petroli's, they're beginning to wonder why Sid Haig and the other guys aren't back yet. And right then, she slams the car through the house and runs several of them over, right? Yeah, uh, first guy to go down is the henchman with the half glasses. He actually takes off his glasses so we can see his messed up eye right before he gets run over. 
Yeah, and uh, she ends up getting Petroni cornered in the in the pool with a shotgun, and uh, he begs for his life, but she has no mercy. She extracts the location of uh, Howard before she pulls the trigger. Well, I love how she does it. Right, he he offers her millions of dollars to to stay alive, to spare his life, and she says, "All right, where's Howard?" And then shoots him. <laughs> Yeah, no she's hesitation. Like, she's like, okay, a million. I'll do it for a million. I won't kill you. But no, it's just a ruse. I mean, it, it doesn't sound like she's trying to be convincing. Like, if you wanted to critique, like, bad acting, I guess you could attack that. But I really saw it as something meta. Like, she's like, yeah, sure, you know, whatever. Yeah, that I wasn't... I feel like there's layers to it, to this performance. Yeah, I agree. I wasn't off-put by this scene. I didn't find it unbelievable. I just found it, like, badass. But, God, can you imagine shooting a hole in the bottom of your expensive pool? Like, repairing this shit is so hard. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure. But, hey, let's play the scene where she goes to the boyfriend's beach house and confronts him with a shotgun. Hello, Howard. Come on and sit down and talk to me. I'm not mad at you. Coffee, baby. I'm glad to see you. I knew they weren't really going to do it. Oh, I ain't here because they didn't try, lover. Well, they would have done it anyway. No matter what I said, you know that. Yeah, I know. I told you I ain't mad at you. Why don't you just let me have the thing? No! And before you try to take it, I think you better know that all your friends are dead. Vitroni, Ramos, McHenry, and some others, too. I killed them all. You? I don't know how I did it. It seems like I'm in a dream. And I'm still in this dream, Howard. And it wouldn't take much for me to kill you now. Well, I see how you you might feel that way, but you understand all the facts. Now, I did what I did for my people, for our brothers and sisters. You shouldn't talk to me about sisters, Howard. I've got a sister. Look, why don't you just relax and let me pour you a drink. You're upset. I mean, you you can see that, can't you? I can see plenty. I can see how each time a kid rips off a car or appliance store at somebody's house to get money for a fix, you get your cut. Yeah, don't be naive, baby. You think if I weren't mixed up with the rackets, there wouldn't be any rackets. Wherever there's a need, somebody comes along to fill it. Black people want dope, and brown people want dope. And as long as people are deprived of a decent life, they're going to want something to just plain feel good with. And nothing's going to change that, except money and power. And that's what I'm after, baby. Power to change things for our people. I want to get all that money back into the hands of black people like you and me. Yes, like you too, Coffee. And you can help me, baby, to make a better life for our people. Bullshit! You're just selling out to the white gangsters and businessmen. You're worse than they are. And I love you. I love you so much. You still do, baby. You know it. And I love you. We're going to do big things together, baby. You're my woman, Coffee. And maybe I have done a few bad things, but that's the way the world is today. 
Sometime you have to do a few little wrong things in order to do one big right thing. And that's what I'm trying to do for you and for our people, that one big right thing. You always were a good talker, Howard. You could talk me into almost anything. But I don't know. I just don't know anymore. All you have to know, baby, is that I'm your man. I'm going to take care of you, and I'm going to steer you straight. I've been missing you these past few days, Coffee. And I've been wanting you real bad. Now, why don't you just put that thing down and come and fold yourself up in my arms. I'll make all this crap go away like it's never been. Now, come on. Howie, what are you doing? Come back to bed. Coffee, baby. You gotta understand. I, I thought you were dead. She doesn't even kill him. She just shoots his dick off. <laughs> <laughs> Which might eventually kill him, but it is not immediate. Yeah, the, my suspicion was that he bled out and died, but like if I'm imagining what happens after the movie. That's what I imagine. All we see him is he uh, bends over a little bit after being uh, absolutely blasted. And she's walking peacefully down the beach. And that's uh, roll credits. That's the end of the movie. I mean, what more needs to be said after this? None. Do you want to give final thoughts a rating out of four? I think it is so surprising that there are that there isn't a proper sequel to this film. Although I've thought about what could happen. You know, how is this woman not going to prison? <laughs> oh, she definitely is. If there was a sequel, it would have to be in prison. Like someone witnessed this last, <laughs> this last murder, assuming he died. And uh, she just left the murder weapon at the scene with her fingerprints on it. But I suppose at this point, maybe she just doesn't care. She's been through so much shit in the past hour and a half. Again, I'm not the most versed in black exploitation films, but my gut instinct is telling me that this is probably just, if not the best, like one of the best, like top three. Um, Luke, you have the experience in this. Is that is that right? It it's definitely one of my favorites, if not my favorite. This is this is significantly better than every other black exploitation film I've seen by a large margin. I just think there's so much creativity here that that is just intermingles with these very real, although apparently stereotypical characters. Oh. But like I'm not gonna forget this movie anytime soon. I'm I'm every character is memorable and like there's just it's so rare to find that in a film, whether it be like from like 50 years ago or nowadays. It's just so well crafted. You compared this to Switchblade Sisters in the beginning, and uh you know they are very similar. In that 
the actual story, the the plot beats are very serious. The overall theming is very serious, but then there's all of somehow they managed to infuse all of this like lighthearted character traits into the middle of it that balances it out in a way. Although I think this film is much more brutal than Switchblade Sisters, um, for what it's worth. I mean, this is this is obviously a four star film for me. This is probably one of the best things we've watched on the podcast. <laughs> like, if we were to do the top ten, like after this, this would be on there for sure. Or what do we do? Top six? Yeah, we yeah. do top six. If we did a top six, like tomorrow, this would be on there. I just, I just find it really hard to believe that anybody would dislike this film. Yeah, Roger Ebert gave it two stars. What? Yeah. St. Roger Ebert gave this two stars. Was this one of those films he eventually went back and forgave? No, but he did later write very favorably about Pam Greer's performance in it. Hmm. But he wasn't really a fan of exploitation films, except for, oddly, those made by Russ Meyer, who he worked with. I, I don't know. I find Roger Ebert's uh, relationship with exploitation films weird. But anyhow, um, as for me, uh, I love this film. I've loved it for a long time. Uh, I like most of Jack Hill's movies, and this is... Switchblade Sisters is probably my favorite, but this is a close second. Um, it combines everything I like. Uh, it's I love 70s exploitation movies of all colors, and I love Jack Hill, and I love the sort of... I think there's a lot of irony in the script, um, it's a very politically aware, it's very politically critical, um, but it's also got all of the exploitation beats that make this an extremely entertaining picture. So um, I won't say anything more than that. Four stars. Pam Greer's fantastic. Um, and folks should go watch all of the films she was in, because even if the movie's bad, Pam Greer's good in it. And I, I don't know why anyone would ever have thought she was a bad actress. Like, I think she's... Um, I think there are a few actresses that can show such a range while also being badass and like an action figure, you know, um, it's just difficult to do both. Anyhow, next week we are going to watch the nature run amok Local mayor needs to protect his image. Jaws rip off. Alligator 2. The Mutation. So if you haven't seen that, check it out and join us then. Until then, you can follow us on Instagram at video.store.nightmares, where I post everything we do. Leland, any last words? There's no way we're going to be able to follow this up with another film of the same quality, so we got to dumb it down a little bit. With Alligator 2. Alligator 2. Yeah, we haven't even covered the first one, but we're doing the sequel. Well, the first one doesn't have an election in it, so we can't do it. No, we are slaves to the theme. All right. So we'll see everyone next week to talk about Alligator 2. Um, check Alligator 1 out as well, because it's it's a really cool movie if you've never seen it. And then watch the second one. Thank you for your continued support. All right. Bye, everyone.